This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine, and it's my great delight to welcome you here uh, to The New Yorker Poetry Podcast. Now, my guest today is someone who, without whom, poetry in The New Yorker simply wouldn't appear. And I'm thinking today of Parker Henry. And Parker Henry works behind the scenes, in a certain sense, at The New Yorker. She is a fact checker and she fact checks the poetry. Parker Henry, when you run into someone at a party and you explain what what you do at The New Yorker, how do you put it? Well, what I say is there's a basic tenet to fact checking the poetry at The New Yorker. And that is that when a poet diverges from reality, that uh, he or she does so intentionally. Although I, I, w- I would hesitate to be so precise about a methodology because every poem is so different than every other poem that I run into a lot of uh, variation. You know, I, I often think in this regard of the famous poem by John Keats on first looking mm-hmm. into Chapman's Homer Uh, which begins, much have I travelled in the realms of gold. And I can quite easily imagine a fact checker in a certain intellection just saying, hold on, whoa, whoa, hold on, just stop right there. What on earth is a realm of gold? That you can kind of take as a metaphor. Um, That's not something that would be flagged to me right away as a kind of thing to check. I mean, we know immediately we're in a poem. Yes, definitely. Even though it's a poem which, uh, you know, from its title is actually grinding us very much on first looking into Chapman's Homer, but it rather notoriously towards its end, Keats refers to stout Cortez, the great uh, explorer Cortez, uh, and he, he sets them upon a peak in Darien. And the fact is that Cortez never went anywhere near Darien and Mm -hmm. Keats uh, was confusing, confounding Cortez and Balboa. And someone pointed it out to him actually, you know, Mm -hmm. shortly after the poem was written. And he said, well, I don't really care about that. (laughs) Have you come across anyone in your in your experience at The New Yorker, a poet who said, well, actually, I know you're right, but we're not going to change it? Yes, um Recently, there was, uh, I had an experience where um, 
I had to check a poem in which the writer referred to a, a number of poems that Sappho wrote. He said that we had had one full poem from Sappho. And it actually turns out that there might be four complete poems from Sappho. Um, it's arguable, but, but I brought this up with the writer, and um, he actually preferred just to stick with his original line that we have one remaining complete poem from Sappho. Well, I suppose there are those who would say, well, actually, in the poetry business, you know, it might not be a life, a matter of life and death in the way that it would be in politics, for example. Right. Though, mind you, truth seems, and fact, what we thought of as fact, seems to be taking a little break in some areas. Right, but... I think the idea is when you're reading a poem, there are moments, there are always moments where there's a reference to either directly or indirectly to a natural phenomenon or a work of literature or some other thinker's work that um, if it's referred to inaccurately, it would actually be a jarring moment for the reader. Um, so it is sort of important because we don't want to distract the, the reader from what could be a compelling moment. Um, and it's sort of my job to kind of safeguard the writer from factual accidents that could render their poem less compelling. Right. Now, I suppose that there is some notion of what a fact is, and the simple mm. getting a fact wrong is probably something that, you know, would be the first category that you would come across. Yes. Um, so that's sort of the um, the first thing I, I look for in a poem, is things like proper nouns, um, obvious factoids, um, obvious references to things that actually exist in the world um, mm -hmm. or have existed. So... I guess that brings me to an example I have here. It's a poem called Visitation of the Dove, and it's by Clive James uh, from the December 7th issue, 2015. And he starts the poem. He, uh, he writes that uh, night is at hand already. It is well that we yield to the night. So Homer sings. So right there, when I come across that, I immediately am attuned to the fact that Homer has said something, or at least Clive James has said that Homer has has sung this thing, night is at hand already, it is well that we yield to the night. So as a fact checker of this poem, I go You look into Chapman's Homer <laughs> and you check it out. Uh -huh. Right. And after that, I go to Homer Homer. And actually in book seven of the Iliad, you find that not exact quote, of course, because um, Homer wasn't writing in English, um, which makes my job a bit easier. Um, but a rough translation of that of that very line, that beautiful line, night is at hand already, it is well that we, we yield to the night, after Ajax and Hector had their single combat. So, so that is just sort of the first part of fact-checking a poem. Right. Later on is another quote from um, Phaedra that uh, James uses. Um, so I'll just, I'll go, I'll refer to uh, Racine's Phaedra and just confirm that that she did, in fact, say that she can, she can see already not much more than through a cloud when she was dying. And it is indeed true. Uh, Clive James was right. But that's sort of the, the process that I undertake when first approaching a poem in, in, a, in a factual sense. And then after that, what, what kind of area do you find yourself uh, getting involved in? A lot of times a poet will refer to a, a series of actions or an action by a subject or something like that. Um, I'll be more specific. Um, in Charles Simic's poem, The Lover, for example, mm -hmm. um, he references um, this spider who is mending a web over his head. Um, so he writes, When I lived on a farm, I wrote love letters to chickens pecking in the yard, or I'd sit in the outhouse writing one to a spider, mending his web over my head. And when I read that, in a, in a commonsensical analysis, I'll consider 
whether or not a male spider can spin a web. Mm-hmm. I think the the common consensus about spiders is that females actually spin the webs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Penelope's. Yeah, the Penelope exactly. <laughs> um, that the females do the spinning and the mending, and uh, men come and uh, prey on on other insects on the female's web. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's what I remembered from my middle school days of arachnid studies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look into this because I do, in checking a poem, want to preserve as much as I can the poet's original vision. I'm not here to change things, um, right. only if it's necessary or if they've made an unintentional accident. Um, so uh, I looked into the possibility of a spider, male spider, spinning a web. Um, and? and it turns out that um, there are two species of spiders who are known to, in their adult years, uh, or days rather, <laughs> spin webs, doily spiders and bowl spiders. So since it, it does cohere with the facts of the world, this male spider spinning a web, that we, can, we could retain Mr. Simic's original line. So you let it stand. So I let it stand because that's what he wanted. He wanted a male spider. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I try to write poems myself, as you Mm -hmm. may know, and you mentioned chickens there, and I find Mm -hmm. myself writing a poem four or five years ago. Uh, It was commissioned by the National Gallery of Ireland, and uh, I I chose to write a poem about chickens. Mm -hmm. Now, chickens are are, uh, quite remarkable in that their body temperature is very, very high, and uh, they're more or less lizards. Hmm. And uh, I, in the midst of my poem, referred to the fact that the chicken, uh, it, that its temperature was something like 106 centigrade. Oh. I stood up in the National Gallery of Ireland to read my poem, and mm-hmm. I read my poem, and question time rolled round. And uh, somebody from the back of the room said, uh, Mr. Muldoon, uh, is it possible that your chicken was roasted? <laughs> and of course, I, I had got, despite the fact, and what I'm getting at here is that despite the fact that one tries to get it right, mm-hmm. you know, there's always a very strong chance mm-hmm. that one will get it wrong despite, despite one's best intentions. So in general, do you find that even though they may want to hold on to what they've got, as it were, do you find on balance that the poets you talk to are happy that you've gone to this trouble? of checking the the facts? I generally find people are appreciative of my work in that I 
I'm trying to save them from potential embarrassment. That's right. I wish you'd read my poem. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there are so many conceptions about the world and the way that it works that seldom do, I think, people stop to really check what we perceive to be basic facts about the world, like the temperature of a chicken, for example. <laughs> well, no, you know, an essay, an essay on clouds by James Richardson, which we published mm-hmm. in, uh, in 2015 mm-hmm. in, on the 2nd of February that year. I mean, it's a poem that seems to be dealing quite explicitly in facts. Yes, um, this is a particular favorite of mine, um, factually and otherwise. And there's um, a fact that's immediately hurled at you at the beginning of the poem. So it's a, it's a kind of prelude into the rest of the very fact-dense piece. And uh, it starts, maybe a whale, as Hamlet mused, or a camel or weasel, more likely a hill. And so given the title, um, we know that the author is talking about, about clouds and and that then Hamlet is musing uh, that the cloud could, is might be a whale or a camel or a weasel. So um, what I did as the fact checker was just go to the text to, to Shakespeare's Hamlet, of course, and make sure that he indeed mused that a cloud could be a whale or a camel or a weasel. And he did. He did. Well, Polonius suggested that it was a weasel, but um, the way this, the sentence is phrased in the poem is coheres with that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so far, so good. Okay. So far, so good. Um, and then later on, I run into a lot of words, actually, that I don't know, which happens to everybody when they read. Uh, <laughs> it does. And, you know, of course, people, you know, when we're reading poems, we tend to think, oh, my heavens, I am such an idiot. I don't recognize that word. What is wrong with me? And the fact of the matter is that none of us can possibly know every word in the English language. It's simply not possible. And we should be perfectly happy to look things up just as you do. Yes, we always should be looking things up. And you're right. English has, I think, more words than Spanish, French, and Italian combined. It's a vast language um, with much depth. So so something like um, aeromancy comes up. Um, and that is actually uh, divination based on atmospheric condition. So uh, James Richardson is uh, talking about what a cloud might want to say. And he references this thing, aromancy, which presumed to interpret but never caught on. Right. And so I run into that and think, you know, I just I have to look up what aromancy is, um, this kind of prophetic science based on the atmosphere, the clouds, the rain. And um, I consider if he's he's using it correctly, which here he is, although I, I, I do stop at that word never. Fact checkers, um, he says aromancy, which presumed to interpret, never caught on. Um, I think fact checkers as a rule, are nervous about categoricals. Right. Um, but absolutes. <laughs> absolutes are difficult because, you know, you never know. I know aromancy as a kind of formal science, of course, is not a popular practice. But um, it, could be big, it could be big somewhere. <laughs> it could be, there could be some group in the Southwest that has continued and, um, you know, holds fast to this, to this, this kind of thing. So nevers are troublesome. Right. But uh, I think in a general sense, it's fine. So aromancy never caught on. Um, And then later on in the poem, James says that large clouds can weigh more than a 747. How do you you check that out? (laughs) Um, Well, you just look at the um, maximum weight of a 747 and the maximum, or rather the range of weight of a 747 and the range of weight of a cloud. Um, And it does turn out that on a sunny day, um, a cloud can weigh over 1 million pounds. Whereas a 747, the maximum takeoff weight is less than a million pounds. Um, 
which is I which is a surprising fact. And I mean, this job, um, especially in the realm of in the poetic realm, uh, never ceases to amaze me. <laughs> so, is it possible that you might have concluded that in fact a, a cl- there is no cloud that weighs anything like a seven forty seven? However, we might allow a bit of what we used to call poetic license. Certainly, and that's what I meant when I. It's not my job to tinker with the poem as much as I can. I, I analyze it in a factual framework um, and try to find plausibility of fact. But if something does diverge from a, a possibility or plausibility in the real world, you know, that's up to the discretion of the, of the writer. And the intentionality of that divergence is crucial because that means something in itself. Right. Um, so even if Charles Simic's spider couldn't ever have existed, the fact of it being a male spider is then interesting. That's right. Mm-hmm. That that is uh, that in fact could conceivably be the point of the poem that he's right. subverting mm-hmm. some 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 fact yeah. in the midst of the poem. What else? Uh, so the next poem is by Justin Quinn uh, called Adelso, and Adelso refers to, as I found out through checking this poem, uh, an island in Sweden. Um, And so right then, the title brings us to a real-world place. And therefore, I, in checking the poem, am looking for references that could be real in in this real island. So Justin writes, I am lying in a hammock in Sweden, blue sky beyond a canopy of cherry. I am resting in a socialistic Eden beside long meadows, tall oaks for a king. Uh, And right there uh, in that first stanza, I see two things. I see cherry, referring to the cherry trees, and oaks. And um, in my fact checker brain, I want to make sure that there are indeed cherry trees and oak trees uh, on this island in Sweden. And and in fact, well, it's an island, of course, but you can imagine that they might be uh, that they might be within the same general um, band of latitude. Yeah, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. Um, and so kind of pinning that down is the sport of fact-checking this. Um, Do you think of it as a sport? It must be terrific fun. It's it's lots of fun, and it's minutia, but it's important to me. Every little detail is what enlivens when I walk everything when I walk around the world. Um, I mean, knowing that there are 63 cherry trees in this particular spot in Sweden is a kind of fun thing to know. And at least it makes me, I think, a more interesting dinner guest or something, (laughs) Um, which I was lacking before. Um, But (laughs) now I have these things. So my, I love to fact check poetry that refers to works of art um, because then I learn more about art, which I'm always seeking to know more of. And, um, and it, it's a kind of direct reference to something I can um, locate and analyze. So this wonderful poem by Linda Paston uh, called Edward Hopper Untitled um, refers to a Hopper painting, a uh, solitary figure uh, in a theater, which was painted in 1902 or 1904. And she just writes that uh, an empty theater seats shrouded in white like rows of headstones the curtain about to rise, uh, or has it fallen, on a scene of transcendental silence. I didn't know exactly what the the Hopper painting was, so I um, had to search for that. And then um, when I found it, just have to look at the painting with reference to the to the poem and make sure that the description is 
sound. Of course, in an aesthetic, ex- an aesthetic experience is especially subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are direct features she's identifying in the painting. Like later she says, oil on board, the label says. So I'll just have to confirm that. And she also mentioned um, that this is quintessential Hopper, the cliche of loneliness. So what I would do for that is uh, look at many Hopper paintings um, and kind of think about if uh, he's using this idea of loneliness uh, in a serial way. So you you really follow things down quite um, implacably. I try, yes. There are... I sometimes make mistakes. Oh, you've made a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, we do say that they don't really happen here, but everybody makes mistakes. Except in the realm of the chicken. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> Except there. <laughs> um, I made a recent factual error in checking a poem by Charles Rafferty. The poem is called Attraction. At the end of the poem, Rafferty writes, the shotgun pellets stuck in our tree continue their slow ascent. Um, so I read that line, and it didn't occur to me that trees do not grow upward. Um, of course, Rafferty is implying in the pellets ascent that the tree is growing up and the pellets are ascending with the tree. Well, they must have a little bit of growing upward. Actually, they, it doesn't. Is that it do, right? It, it, really? It, it doesn't. Uh, no trees grow upward. So that's why if you actually carve your initials in a, a tree trunk um, or even a, a branch— the location of the initials won't Vis-a-vis won't your, your, your height in the world, mm-hmm. they won't move. They won't move, exactly. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Huh. So, yeah, when I read this poem, and I, I, it's such a lovely poem that sometimes I'm just sort of so compelled that I forget that I should be viewing it in this analytical framework, and it just didn't, and it just didn't occur to me that, that trees don't grow that way until some people brought it to my attention via the Internet. <laughs> So, well, what about the internet? I mean, do you find the internet a useful tool in fact checking, or do you actually have to know the right answer before you even get on the internet? And which is sometimes seems to be the case. Um, so there is a sense in which you have to know what you're looking for in order to find it, which is precisely why I think fact checkers are so afraid of categorical statements or absolutes, um, because if you're researching a specific topic, the entire breadth of that topic is not going to be revealed in a specific search. So um, I I guess in this instance, um, I would have to know to look up how trees grow, which I guess I I could have done. But it's difficult because you're always searching for something narrowly. Yes, that's a hard one, isn't it? I mean, would you put in do trees grow, which way do trees grow, or even to know how to phrase that where one would get... uh, get a, a sort of reasonable answer. Right. And it's such an intuitive process of growth that it passed even the fact checker that, of course, trees grow up out of the ground um, when, in fact, they're growing wider. You just you have to be this intentionally dense subject that to actually consider that trees would grow in a different way than up out of the ground. <laughs> so do you find yourself as you move through life taking nothing at face value? It's, diff- it's difficult now. So and uh, there is a sense in which I've lost a bit of irony and humor because I'll literally parse sentences when they're thrown at me um, or spoken to me, rather. I'm a skeptic now. Uh, I always was a skeptic, um, and I think that's 
why I do what I do, but it's certainly been enhanced by the by the practice of continually doing it and continually finding errors in everything. Even I mean, even works of fiction. Well, <laughs> well Parker Henry fact checker at the New Yorker magazine it has been an absolute delight talking to you and really quite instructive and I think I've learned a few things and I hope our listeners have too thank you so much for being with us today thank you so much I'm Paul Muldoon poetry editor of the New Yorker until next time goodbye you may subscribe to this podcast the fiction podcast the writer's voice podcast and the politics and more podcast by searching for you can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the new yorker app available from the app store or google play if you've been listening to the new yorker radio hour on your phone you might want to read the new yorker that way too you can do that with the new yorker today app a great way to read the new yorker on your mobile device Download it from iTunes, or you can find it at newyorker.com slash today. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Frazier and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of newyorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 